But anyway, okay. James chapter 4. Um, refresh my, Bobby, was this your lesson that you taught last, or was it Dan? I can't remember. Okay, and that was the last one. That's right. So um, we're just going to quickly look at this to set up some friction that we'll talk about. So James chapter 4, verse uh, 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. When you study the scriptures and you're trying to um, put your finger on the meaning of a text, um, when, you, when you have enough time into it and the Spirit kind of illumines the text and helps you, you hope to arrive at like a single sentence that will summarize the truth in a text. Then you can tuck that in your pocket and walk away and you know what that text is kind of saying. Sometimes it's really obvious by a repetition of words that, that are in a text. Not so in this one. This one's a little bit more difficult. It's, it's more conceptual. So let me just ask you a couple of diagnostic questions. We'll kind of do this collaboratively quickly and then we'll, then we'll move on. Um, give me the two activities that James is telling his scattered church they ought not to do. What are the two things in this text that James says, you really ought not to do this? What are they? Bernice? Judge and plan. Okay, that's good. So we need to, we need to take that and turn it around and look at it a little bit because if we, if, we, that's, if we parked and stopped there and didn't do any more work, we might actually conflict with some other passages. Right? Like, don't judge. Is there a passage that says that we ought to judge? Yeah, Matthew tells, Jesus teaches that, right? He's, Jesus teaches, and I think, is that Matthew 7? Don't judge hypocritically, but we are to judge. I mean, take the log out of your own eye first. Approach people humbly, but we are to judge. Just not, there's a certain kind of judgment that's wrong, right? So, um, so, so we need to do a little bit more work there to just to tighten, and, tighten that up a little bit. And what about the planning? Is, are there any texts in the Bible that say that we ought to make a plan? I mean, good night. I mean, where do we start? Proverbs is rife with um, those sort of wisdom uh, sayings, right? Um, uh, but, uh, and, and then the, the New Testament epistles are full of all kinds of commands on what to do with um, the talents that God gives you and, um, and, and what to do in the church. We're studying that in 1 Timothy. I mean, isn't, 
Isn't Paul essentially telling Timothy in a big way, like, make a plan for the church? Right? So, so I think, Bernice, you've, you've nailed it. It's those two concepts. But what's wrong? Find me a question in either half of that text that tells us what's wrong with the kind of judging or planning that James is talking about. Can you see a question in there that's kind of a biting question? Okay, and what verse is that? Okay, in 14, what is your life? Right? What's, the, what's James's point there? He's not saying don't plan, but what is he saying? Don't plan in what kind of a way? In a presumptuous way. Right? Don't plan as if you know precisely what's going to happen tomorrow and how long you're going to live. Like you've got this, you know, unbreakable sort of plan. Don't presume. Who are you? And do we have a question like that in the first half? Who are you to judge? You're not the judge. In other words, don't presume to take God's position as the ultimate judge. Right? So that's the two pieces that we have. But even in trying to describe this and define this, we're bumping up against some potential conflicts. Well, am I never to judge? Am I never to plan? And this is, this is, this is the rub that I want you uh, to feel. So um, what we've been trying to do in our Sunday school um, uh, planning, uh, no pun intended, with the text, um, but uh, we're trying to bake in some lessons where we can just sort of park for a minute and maybe explore some things so we don't have to just rush right to the next text and maybe not have some time to really ferret out um, you know, how to apply these things. Um, so this morning what I want to do uh, in the time that we have left, I, I just want to talk about this idea of God's providence. God's providence. Um, so listen to, I, uh, so just to push this tension a little further, listen to Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. He's going to say how he's unique now. He's just, he's just declared there's nobody like me. Now he's going to tell you why, in what way. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Boy, that's just, that's just sort of rock solid, isn't it? God's essentially saying, Nobody's like me. I declare what's going to happen at the end from the beginning, and everything that I purpose to do 
will actually come to pass. How do we see that in the Scriptures? We see it all over in the Scriptures, particularly in terms of prophecy, right? Do any sort of study in the prophets, and the prophets are predicting what will happen in the last days, right? Which is this really long stretch of time, which might mean something historically close in time to when the prophet is speaking with some sort of ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age, right? So we see this in prophecy, right? We also see it as we look at, um, as we look at apocalyptic literature like Daniel or Revelation that speaks of the end of the age, Right? Daniel talks about those, those certain number of weeks and what's going to happen you know, in, the, in the end times. Even Jesus teaches about the end times and towards the end of Matthew's Gospel. Right? Um, and then, of course, the book of Revelation is all about how the, you know, this, this world is going to wrap up. And, and sort of, you might think of that Isaiah 46 passage as a banner over all of that. I declare what's going to happen before it happens. And I have purposes in those things happening. And my purposes never get thwarted. What I plan always comes to pass. Okay? All right. So that sets us up. That, put, that puts some tension on, on uh, this idea of, uh, of don't presume, you, Bobby, don't presume to know the end from the beginning. God only does. Right, um, but then we have passages, and I'm I'm just going to take three, just again to try to push this. Um, somebody give me give me Matthew 28, very familiar passage, verses 19 and the first part of 20. Matthew 28, 19, first part of 20. Who's getting that for me? Is that Nathan Miller? You got that one. And then uh, Billy, why don't you give me Second Thessalonians? That must be two. 6 through 15. It's a little lengthy. And then, Bobby, you want to get me Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, and then also 15 to 16, if you can remember. 1 to 3, 15 to 16. Okay, if you're there, Miller, Matthew 28. It's a great commission, right? It's, it's, it's Jesus' marching orders for his church, right? Missionaries take this up and they go to other places to, to plant churches or to train nationals or, or to or do some sort of mercy ministry to aid the planting of the churches, right? It's what local churches hear. We take that up. It's, it, it's seen in all of our mission statement and vision and, and these sorts of documents, right? And, and in order to do that, what do you have to do? This just doesn't happen right? You need to make a plan. You need to be deliberate. You need to, you need to get equipped for sharing the gospel. You don't just go out there with no plan, hoping that maybe somebody will drop in my lap. Occasionally that happens, but that's not really normally. That's not, that's not the normal way, the normative way that we see the church expanding. It's deliberate. It's planning. It's taking resources. It's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's marshalling your assets and, 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 and divvying things up and, and coming up with a plan, right? And what about that Thessalonians passage? I, I think I missed a number here. I think it's 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 15. Is that the one about idleness? 
have the right passage? Or is it three? Let me, let me look, sorry. Okay. Yep. No, that's not it, sorry. That's my fault, not yours. It's chapter three, sorry. And you get the sense of that passage, right? In other words, work. Don't be lazy. Don't be idle. In fact, it goes on to say, if a guy's lazy, he doesn't eat. Right? The church of Jesus Christ ought to look like people working. Using the, the strength and resources that God gives to work. Right? And then what about the Ephesians passage? Ephesians 4, 1-3, to and then 15-16. to That's going to take some planning. That's going to take some deliberate action, right? To, to, to minister to other people in their weakness, to, um, to work hard to preserve peace, right? All, all of these different, I mean, these just beautiful charges, right, to the church. And then 15 and 16, too. So how does the church build itself up? When everybody's doing their part. When everybody's working. When everyone's being deliberate. When everyone's training themselves to deny themselves and work for other people. Right? That takes action. That takes deliberation. So I, I do all of this to try to push that tension. Because what's, what's the objection to God having this providential planning of all events? What's the objection? If God's got everything worked out, Tom, what's the, what's the objection? What are we supposed to do? He's got it all worked out, right? So we essentially say that, so we essentially take up this idea of fatalism, where we say like, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Why should I pray? Why should I evangelize? Why should I use the resources that God gave me to work for other people? Why should I labor towards unity? God's already declared this from the beginning, how it's all going to shake out. That's the objection to God's providence. And yet we've got passages like this in Isaiah and everywhere in the Scriptures. Right? I mean, you were in Ephesians. If you just back up to chapter 1, I mean, it's, it's like this, this Isaiah 46 type language. Right? Okay, let's look at quickly three, three uh, uh, passages where we see these ideas come together. Right? So you're in Ephesians, just back up to Ephesians 2.10. Uh, who will get me Philippians 2.12 and 13? Anyone? 
Nathan Gearhart, and uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and then somebody else, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Is that Bernice? Colossians 1, 28 and 29. You're the third reader. You got time. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Okay, so Ephesians 2, 10. What? I mean, you see the two concepts come together there, don't you, Chloe? God's made you his workmanship, his, his work of art, right? And he has prepared good works for you to do in advance, right? That speaks of, of both those concepts coming together. God providentially working things out purposefully for his plans, right? But you're involved, integrally involved you you are you are you're an integral uh, you, you know you you can't divorce you from that that idea and isn't that how we see god work out his plan in the church i mean do we have passages that talk about him evangelizing and bypassing all of us i mean we do see some examples of that in the scripture but those are extraordinary things like calling paul Right, calling Saul as conversion uh, on the Damascus Road. That's not typically how we see it. Normally we see Peter sitting down with Cornelius and his friends and sharing the gospel with them, and they are converted, right? Okay, and what was the second one? Uh, Philippians 2? Wow. Starts off one way and just turns left quickly, doesn't it? I mean, you've always obeyed. I want you to keep obeying. Even when I'm not around, obey. Work out your own salvation. That is your own Christian life. Do so knowing God, fearing God, right? Do so in trembling, right? Knowing that Actually, while you're doing it, God is working His will and purpose through you. You see how those concepts come together? And then what about Colossians there? 1, 28 and 9. Yeah, isn't that great? So we're going to warn everybody, warn everybody against sin and idolatry and warn them that the, the only way to be presented mature in Christ is, is through faith. And as we're doing that warning and we're, we're toiling in that, we, we discover that it's God's power in us that's fueling us to do that. Right? So there are other passages, but those are just really three, three really clear examples of this idea of God's providence and, and our working, working in faith, coming together, okay? So, God's providence. Here's a definition for you. John Piper um, wrote this really thick book on providence. Here's his, um, uh, his definition. God's providence, the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Give it to you again. 
the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. Or, if you want it in, in a more lower kind of a way to explain it, he sees to it that things happen in a certain way. He sees to it that things happen in a certain way. But, you, but he does so with this idea of purpose. So, you may have heard the phrase, um, uh, the idea of God's sovereignty. Sovereign is a king. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, that's his authority and power to make things happen the way that he wants to happen. That's really close to providence, but providence has the idea that he's working it all out purposefully. Okay? He's got a plan in this. All right? Um, So, turn to Genesis 22. And we'll see a real live example of this. Well-known passage, the sacrifice of Isaac is my header in, in my Bible here. And right away, like, you're flooded with, I know that story, right? Okay. All right, let's see. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Genesis 22.3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. Jeremy, you looking at verse 7? Read that verse out loud for me, real loud. So you get the scene, right? Hey, we've got everything else, but where's the animal, right? And uh, in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for an offering. What is Abraham communicating there? God's going to see to it. He's going to provide. He's got this worked out. So while Abraham doesn't say it straight out, his heart, his his faith is seen right there in that sentence, isn't it? And in fact, his faith is vindicated because a ram is caught in the thicket, right? Because initially, the, the, the command is, go sacrifice your son, And he, by faith, knows that God's going to somehow substitute him out. Something's going to happen. The New Testament tells us that he must going to raise him from the dead. He's going to provide in some way. He's going to see to it. His providence is going to be seen in this scene in my life right here. And that's how it rolls out. Here's Piper's explanation of this. God does not simply see as a passive bystander. As God, he is never merely an observer. He is not a passive 
passive observer of the world and not a passive predictor of the future. Wherever God is looking, God is acting. In other words, there is a profound theological reason why God's providence does not merely mean His seeing, but rather His seeing too. When God sees something, He sees to it. Evidently, as Moses wrote Genesis 22, God's purposeful engagement with Abraham was so obvious that Moses, who wrote it, could simply refer to God's perfect seeing as implying God's purposeful doing. His seeing was his seeing too. His perception implied his provision, his providence. You see that? It's baked right into that narrative. You can't read that narrative and come to a different conclusion. You can't read this, Abraham's word, his answer to his son, and go, he's got no idea. He's got no faith. He's, got, he's just, you know, he's hoping that it will rain and he won't have to start the fire. We can't come to that conclusion. The only conclusion we can come to is God will purposefully see to it. He's got purposes in this. He's got a plan for this. Right? Okay. It's seen less explicitly in Exodus chapter 2. Look at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2.23 During those days, what are the those days? These are the days after Joseph has died and after the king that knew Joseph died. It's a new pharaoh. People have multiplied and multiplied and multiplied uh, in Egypt. And in verse 23 we read, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, without the idea of God's providence, we read this and we go, that's some kind of compassionate, caring God. He's just an onlooker on people's suffering. He remembers he made some promises, but evidently he's not going to do anything about it. All he's doing is seeing, observing passively. Is that what's going on in this text? If you only had these two verses in the book of Exodus, you might conclude that. But we know what happens in this book. In fact, this, this concludes chapter 2, but what starts chapter 2? God providentially protecting a baby boy that's born under a death sentence from the Pharaoh. Murder all the boys. Right? This one doesn't get murdered. Somehow doesn't get eaten by crocodiles in the river. Somehow this little basket doesn't capsize. I mean, you ever, you know, just sort of put your baby on a pool raft and go cook? And leave it. No, nobody does that, right? But that could have happened. The, the, the Egyptians that found him could have went, Dad said kill all the boys. Somebody kill this boy. Like, any manner of things could have happened, right? So this is on the tail end of God providentially protecting Moses and then calling him in the next chapter. I've got plans for you. 
My people are in trouble, and you're the one that's going to go deliver them. Right? God's providence. God has purposes in all of this. In fact, he, if we know our Bibles, if we go back into, in, into Genesis, we know that God predicted that they would be in slavery. And they'd be there for a set amount of time before He delivered them. Friends, if you read the Bible with eyes looking for God's providence, you'll find it. God has purposes in all of the different eras of human history and all of the events that take place. Okay. All right, I got five minutes. Lots to cover. What's the most famous verse in the book of Esther? What is it? For such a time as this. Who's speaking and who is he speaking to? Do you remember? Yeah. Is, is it uh, cousin or uncle? I always forget. Cousin? What'd you say? I like to think of him as an uncle, so I'll say uncle. I might be wrong, right? But, but what's the conversation that's happening? What's the context? Haman has tricked the king into signing an edict that says, slaughter the Jews. Esther's a Jew. She, was, she, she, she became queen, right? To, to Ahasuerus, right? Or Xerxes. And, uh, and, there, and, and if we had the time to, to look at this, in, in, um, in Esther chapter 3, I think it is, um, the, the narrator tells us, everybody knows if you go to the king uninvited, you could be killed. Right? And Esther's cousin, uncle, whatever that relation is, has told her, go tell the king what's going on. In, intervene for your people, for our people. And she's afraid because she knows this. If I go in uninvited, he'll kill me. And he says to her, it may be that you're in this position for such a time as this. What does that imply? That implies that God has providentially set the table. I mean, it was pretty unlikely that this Jew was going to be queen, right? But God made that happen. God's the one that gifted her with beauty and had the king, you know, catch, had her catch the king's eye and all that go down and, and the king have favor on her and, and all of that, right? God's providence. He has purposes. And what was that purpose? To deliver his people from certain death. Now think about just the wide sweep of his history that, that, we're, being, that we're talking about in, uh, uh, in the Old Testament here. God's deliverance of his people from slavery. Right? God's deliverance of his people from death. You think God has purposes in all of the events that we read about? You bet he does. Right? You also see God's planning. We don't have time to go. I'm just going to read these, these references. But in Matthew 5, we're told that God sends the sun and the rain on both the just and the unjust. His purpose is in that. Even purposes for God's people to not fret in the next chapter. 
Why would you worry about your life? God takes care of the birds and the fields and He sends the sun and the rain for context, right? Why would you worry? You're much more valuable to God than birds and fields and flowers, right? So there's purposes even in the everyday life of God's people not worrying about things, right? First Peter chapter 3, talks, verse 17, talks about suffering for righteousness if it's God's will, it's good. It's good for you. That's a good thing for you to suffer for, for, right, for rightness sake, right? To suffer for God's purposes. That's good. It echoes the, the righteous suffering of His Son. Brings Him glory and advances the, the faith. John chapter 11 is packed with this kind of thinking. Remember when Lazarus, the report of Lazarus' sickness reaches Jesus' ears? And what does he do? He gets on the fastest camel, right? That's not what happens. He says, this isn't going to result ultimately in death. And he stays a couple more days. And he even says to, to the disciples explicitly, this is so that God will be glorified and the Son will be glorified and you'll believe. That's why. That's why I'm planning this out exactly this way. That's why Lazarus is going to hit the tomb before I get there. Right? His purposes. Deliverance from slavery. Deliverance from death. Resurrection. God has purposes in, in all the planning that He does. And with that in mind, we can read passages like Romans 8 that says, hey, everything's going to work out for your good. God's planning this. And we could spend a lot of time in Romans 8 because it talks about Him electing people and calling people and, and, and sanctifying them and glories in front of them. And you're just in the middle here somewhere. So you can trust Him. All this is, all this is for your good. God's, God's going to get glory in the lives of His people. And by the way, He who doesn't hold back His own Son, surely He's going to give you all things as He keeps you, as nobody can take you from God's love. He's, he's got this. Hebrews 12 talks about His purposes in, in, in disciplining you. So that you'll stop sinning and turn back to faith again, and we can go on and on. Okay, so as a wrap up, Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1500s, question 27. Wow, I got to read the Old English. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? Here's the answer The Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven earth and all creatures so that herbs and grass rain and drought fruitful and barren years meat and drink health and sickness riches and poverty yea and all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand here's the next question what advantage what advantage is it to us to know that god has created and by his providence does still uphold all things in other words, what's the upshot? Why do I care? Here's the answer, according to the Heidelberg Catechism. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, 
that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Knowing that, we can judge. Knowing that, we can plan. But we do it properly. We do it in faith. We do it knowing that we're not the judge. That we're not the one who declares the end from the beginning and calls a man for his purpose. We're not that God. But we serve him. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we're in him. Right? I hope that's just a, it was a brief you know, just sort of fly over about this idea of God's providence, of His purposeful providing and guiding and managing of the created world for His glory and for our good. Pierre, would you pray for us as we close?